they got the best Dunkin' Donuts plug ever in this movie. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week as Happy Death Day, I'm sure, which will be a classic of modern cinema, is coming out this week, we're taking a look at another movie that has time loops and time jumps, and that is Source Code. So we're going to take a look at Source Code, and the theme will be Deception. And to do that, I have a new guest. I have Tyler Heverly, who is a contributor at Audiences Everywhere, a site I also write for. So welcome to the show, Tyler. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't you let people know, um, you know, where they can find your work and maybe a particular piece that you're proud of that they should seek out? So you can find all my work at Audiences Everywhere, um, as was stated. Um I have written some pieces on some of my favorite directors. I have a kind of career retrospective of Sofia Coppola that I really enjoyed writing. Um, I did write up on uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Split and how that connected to uh, Silence of the Lambs and uh, Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So those, I'd say, were two of my favorites. You can check those out on that site. Excellent. Right on. All right. So before I jump into the psychology of deception, can you give us a couple movie recommendations? Sure. Um, so with Source Code being what we're going to talk about today, I think the obvious one to bring up is Tony Scott's uh, Deja Vu, which is a pretty cool, um, kind of a different sort of sci-fi movie because it's not super high tech. I mean, it very much is sort of a modern action movie setting, but you have sort of a similar theme of, you know, a love story set amidst this, you know, this one kind of technological gimmick that loops time. Um, so I'd say that would make a good companion piece to Source Code, and it's a good movie on its own right. And, and then any also, any Tony Scott recommendation is usually going to be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I could go Unstoppable as well if right. you want to talk about on the train. <laughs> um, but um, so that's a good one for sure. And then also uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think, is obviously a great Shane Black written and directed movie. Um, also has Michelle Monaghan, who I believe can do no wrong. So that's great. And if we're talking deception, Robert Downey Jr. kind of plays a very deceptive character in that, I'd say. Yes. So, yeah, check it out. Definitely. Yeah, two two great movies. Two movies I'm a big fan of. So, awesome, awesome double feature there. All right, so we are going to take a break. Uh, then I will talk about deception, and we'll bring Tyler back to talk about source code. Hey, people. My name is Peter, and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is I may review movies I grew up watching, or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. So it's time for the psychology section. So this week we are talking about deception. So deception is just the act of putting forward beliefs in things that aren't true or not the whole truth. And that's much more important in the movie we're going to watch today in Source Code, this idea of half-truths or omissions. Uh, deception can involve a bunch of different things like propaganda, sleight of hand, uh, just distracting someone, uh, concealing something. Uh, and there's also self-deception. So you're deceiving yourself, but that's not really the case in our movie today. So deception is seen as a major relational transgression that can lead to these feelings of betrayal and distrust between people. What deception does is it violates these rules that we have set up for ourselves in our society, and it's considered to be this negative violation of social expectations. Most people expect friends, partners, and even strangers really to be truthful most of the time. Now, if we expected our conversations with people to be untruthful, communication with others would require constant distraction and misdirection to acquire reliable information. Like we'd have to trick them into telling us 
the truth. Now, there's several different types of deception, and they all serve to either distort or omit the truth. So this can range from false statements to misleading claims where you just omit relevant information and you lead the other person to, to draw these false conclusions. So the five forms of deception that are listed here, one, uh, just flat out lies. So you make up information or give information that is either the opposite or very different from the truth. Two, equivocations. And that's when you make an indirect, ambiguous, or contradictory statement. Three, concealments. So this is, this is that omitting information that we talk about, but you're omitting information that's important or relevant to the context, and you end up engaging in behavior that helps hide that relevant information. Fourth is exaggeration. So that's just what it sounds like. You overstate or stretch the truth to some degree. And lastly, understatements, which is kind of the opposite. So you're minimizing or downplaying some, some aspect of the truth. And back in 1996, there was an article about motives for deception, and they proposed kind of three different ways to distinguish motivations for deception based on this theory called interpersonal deception theory. So one is instrumental. So you're doing it to either avoid punishment or protect resources. The second one is relational. So you're doing it in order to maintain relationships or bonds. Like I'm lying, lying to you for your own good is the idea there. And last is identity to preserve your self image. Okay. So what about like kind of detecting deception? It's really important that we're able to do that. So detecting it between like a partner is really difficult unless the partner tells a really obvious lie that contradicts something the other person already knows. Now, it's difficult to deceive a partner over long periods of time, but deception occurs in day-to-day -day conversations between partners all the time. Detecting this deception is really difficult because there's no really known reliable indicators of deception. People may tell you, like, I know when someone's lying because of this, the way they don't make eye contact, the way their body shifts, but none of that is actually true because every person interacts and has different body language in a different way. So... Deception places a significant cognitive load on the deceiver. It's a lot of work to deceive someone. So they got to, you know, you got to remember your previous statements so that the story matches up and is consistent. And as a result, the people who deceive often end up leaking important information either verbally or non-verbally. So deception and deception detection is this really complex process that's really based on the context of the message you're exchanging. So there's something called the interpersonal deception theory, which I mentioned earlier, and it says that interpersonal deception is a dynamic, iterative process of mutual influence between a sender who manipulates information to depart from the truth and a receiver who attempts to establish the validity of the message. So the deceiver's actions are related to the message receiver's actions. So during this exchange, the deceiver will reveal verbal and nonverbal information about this deceit, about this lie. And some research has found that there are some cues that might be correlated with deceptive communication. But depending on which scholar you read, you're going to get a lot of disagreement about the effectiveness of these cues as reliable indicators. One scholar states that there is actually no nonverbal behavior that is uniquely associated with deception. There are, however, some nonverbal behaviors that have been found to be correlated with deception. And actually, one person out there, Mark Frank, proposes that deception is actually detected at a cognitive level. So lying requires this deliberate conscious behavior. So listening to another person and watching their body language end up being really important factors in detecting these lies. So some things you can look at are like vocal cues, like the frequency, height, and variation of the person's tone of voice might actually provide meaningful cues to deceit. But again, this is, this is easier with a, with a partner or a friend or someone you know, but with a stranger, you're not going to know what their normal is. So what they're really looking at is fear, which is when people lie, they tend to be afraid. They're afraid of telling the truth. They're afraid of getting caught in this deceit, and it causes this heightened arousal. And that will um, they'll manifest in a number of ways. Um, the pupils will dilate, uh, speech will change, a higher pitch voice, as I mentioned, and frequent blinking even will happen when, when people are lying. So liars that experience guilt have been shown to make attempts at putting actual physical distance between themselves and the person they're deceiving. And, and they'll produce these cues. These cues can be verbal or physical. Um, some people will speak in more indirect ways, like kind of avoiding kind of direct communication. Or as I mentioned, uh, the idea where you can't maintain eye contact with your conversation partner. Okay. So as far as deception, it happens most often, sadly, in romantic relationships. 
There's actually studies that say more than 90% of individuals admit to lying or not being completely honest with their partner at one time. Now, it's important to remember that this doesn't necessarily, they're lying about everything or they're cheating on their partner or lying about the big things. It just means they're not being totally honest, which is going to happen. And they've seen in these studies three motivations for deception in relationships. One are partner-focused motives. So you're using the deception in order to avoid hurting your partner or to help your partner and enhance their self-esteem. You know, this is the classic, like, you know, how does this, how does this outfit make me look? Am I gaining weight? Do I, you know, any of that stuff. If you, if you deceive your partner and say, like, and, and you give them the quote-unquote good answer, then you're doing it for their self-esteem and maybe for your own peace of mind so you don't have to get in a fight about it. Uh, the second is self-focused motives. So this is when you use deception to enhance or protect your own image. This is not for the other person. Uh, it's also to avoid constrictions, uh, to not have to go and do activities that you don't want to do, or shield yourself from anger, embarrassment, or criticism. And another really common self-focused motive is when you continue to deceive in order to avoid being caught in a previous deception. So I told one lie, now i got to keep telling the lies that match up with that, you know, kind of forever or until I get caught. Uh, and the last motive is relationship focus. So this is when you use deception to limit harm against the relationship in order to avoid conflict. So actually, relationally motivated deception can be beneficial to a relationship, but it can be harmful because it can really complicate things. One last question to ask ourselves is, is deception always bad? Is there a good side to deception? Well, people in my field, psychologists, would say that there is a good side. So we use deception all the time in psychological research. We often need to deceive the subjects to the purpose of the experiment in order to get them to act in as natural a way as, as is possible. So really what it's about is human beings are really sensitive to how they appear to others and this level of self-consciousness tends to interfere with how they actually behave outside of a research context where they're not being watched. For example, if we're interested in learning um, how and why students cheat on tests, asking students, hey, how often do you cheat, uh, might result in a high percentage of what we, what we call socially desirable answers. And they would just say no because you're not supposed to cheat. And also, we can't really verify the accuracy of these self-report responses. So if it's silly to just ask them why or how often they do something, researchers will use deception to distract the participants from the true behavior of interest. So back to that study on cheating. The participants might be told that the study has to do with intuition. So during the process, they might be given the opportunity to look at another participant's correct answers before handing in their own. So at the conclusion of this, or any research involving deception, all participants get told of the true nature of the study and why the deception was deemed necessary. We call this something called debriefing. So yes, this is commonly used and allowed by our ethical gu guidelines put forward by the American Psychological Association, but there's a lot of debate there's a lot of debate about whether or not the use of deception should be permitted in these research experiments. People on the side that they're against deception object to this on ethical grounds. Uh, in particular, Dresser in 1981 stated that ethically, uh, researchers are only to use subjects in an experiment after the subject has given informed consent, which is where we tell them what's going to happen, and they're informed of everything that is going to go on in this experiment. But because of the very nature of these experiments, a researcher conducting a deception experiment can't reveal its true purpose to the subject, thereby not ever giving any informed consent, which is against our ethical code. But from a practical perspective, uh, there, are also, there are also other problems with deception. So there's an article in 1998 that said deception can strongly affect the reputation of individual labs and the profession, thus contaminating the participant pool. So if the subjects in an experiment are suspicious of the researcher, they are unlikely to behave as they normally would, and the researcher's control of the experiment is then completely compromised. But those who don't object to the use of deception note that there's always a struggle in balancing the need for conducting this research that can solve social problems and the necessity for preserving the rights of the research participant. They also state that in some cases, using deception is actually the only way to obtain certain pieces of information. And if we prohibit all deception in research, then we would never find out these interesting answers that we really would like to find in order to help solve societal issues. On top of that, there are findings out there that suggest that deception is not actually harmful. 
to subjects. There's a review from 1988 uh, that said research participants don't perceive that they are harmed and don't seem to mind being misled after their, after we discuss it with them afterwards. Those participating in experiments also involving deception, uh, they report having enjoyed the experience and perceived more educational benefit than those who participated in experiments that are non-deceptive. So there's definitely some uh, some good points on both sides. Uh, I'm not really sure where I stand. I, I tend to fall on the side that deception is okay as long as you're not kind of outwardly harming your participants and you discuss it with them afterwards. Uh, but in terms of this movie, I think, uh, I think it's going to be interesting because it's – you know, we're not dealing with deception in a primary sexual relationship. Uh, we're obviously not dealing with it in the way that we would look at a psychological study, although I think that might be closer. But I think the people in our movie are not quite so ethical and not interested in, in debriefing uh, our hero. Not not going to debrief Jake Gyllenhaal here. Um, but we will talk about that with Tyler. Uh, so we'll take a little break and then we'll bring him back to talk about Source Code. Watched the movie? Check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie now. So I'd like to kind of go into our history uh, with source code, such as it is. I don't think this is a movie, it feels like a movie that it has a lot of fans, but not a lot of really passionate fans who are like, yes, source mm -hmm. code is the best movie ever. And I remember seeing this in the theater and, you know, liking it more than I expected to. Like I walked in kind of like, eh, I don't know, you know, I think this was before Jake Gyllenhaal really had kind of busted out and become one of our best actors, which I do think he is now. Um, so I wasn't expecting much and I was kind of like, yeah, that was really good. And then just, I never, you know, bought it when it came out and never rewatched it. This is the first time I've rewatched it since. And I was really, I actually think I liked it more on rewatch. Like I think maybe I underestimated the movie because I wasn't expecting much. Uh, but watching it this time was really enjoyable. Uh, what about you? What's your history with source code? So, yeah, I saw it when it came out in theaters as well, which I believe was to er it was like March of 2011, I believe. Mm. Um, I had seen Duncan Jones's movie Moon, which right. I mean, like a lot of, you know, science fiction fans, I really, really enjoyed, and you know, kind of was excited to see him do with more of a mainstream budget, sort of a similar like one setting type of movie. And I mean, yep, I, similar boat of Jake Gyllenhaal was not, you know, in you know this on this streak with like Nightcrawler and enemy and stuff of being this like a plus actor. But I mean, I remember liking him and just about everything I'd seen him in like Zodiac, you know? And so seemed like it'd be a fun movie and I enjoyed it then. And I enjoy it now. Nice. Uh, so you mentioned the director, uh, you mentioned Duncan Jones, who has fallen a bit out of favor lately, uh, mainly because of directing Warcraft, yeah. uh, which is probably a mistake. Uh, but you brought up <laughs> moon and it was something I noticed here that like these movies are actually quite similar. Uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's one man alone, uh, in a, in a contained space. And the only true human interaction he has is with someone who's really not there. So that's something he seems to be really, really focused on. But I think the movies are different enough and they, they use different tricks that it's still kind of okay. And Duncan Jones is one of those, one of those directors that I was kind of, uh, disappointed is too strong a word, but kind of annoyed that he did Warcraft because I wanted him, I wanted him to kind of continue doing these really interesting projects as you know, as opposed to like a big budget kind of yeah. uh, special effects extravaganza that you're going to have with Warcraft, no matter what movie you make. Um, so, what did you think of his direction in particular in Source Code? 
I think Source Code is a really smartly directed movie because you wouldn't think this at first, but it's kind of an easy concept to do badly because oh, yes. you're dealing with having to play the same scenario over and over. I believe it's eight minutes is the time yep. period which Jill Hall's character gets sent back to repeat to figure out who's going to bomb the train. And yeah, you could do that in such a way where it gets so repetitive and it just sort of right. feels like it's banging on the head with the same things. But Jones is very smart in kind of, kind of sprinkling variety into each time Hall plays the scenario over again. I mean, you have the similar things of like the guy who spills coffee on his shoe and all that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Monaghan's first line to him, and it doesn't feel just so repetitive. It feels definitely the familiarity is there, so you buy the same scenario, but he knows just how to add a few different touches each time around, and so I think it's really smartly done that way. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's one of the main things I took away from this is this movie almost has no right to be as good as it is. Uh, when when yeah. when you set up a movie to be repetitive, because it has to be, you know, he's trying to to solve this this mystery that he only has eight minutes to do each time, and there's and there's you know you're not really sure exactly of the rules of the situation because it keeps kind of changing, and he's definitely affected every time that this bomb goes off, so you're not really sure where he stands. So the the fact that they do make this in a way that's not repetitive and also visually interesting. Because if you're doing not only like making these character changes, but you're on the same set for two hours. Like there's little bits where you're not there, but most of the movie takes place on this train and it would be really easy for this to go really wrong. And for someone who had only made, you know, two or three movies at this point, that's actually really Mm -hmm. impressive. Yeah, it absolutely is. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of the focal point of the movie is that certain little things change up just enough. Like I think it's the second time where he, you know, starts talking with the comedian character on the train. And so he's good to each time add a new detail that you can go back on a repeat viewing and look at that person again. Or, I mean, Mm -hmm. they got the best Dunkin' Donuts plug ever in this. Oh my God. Yes. Station on the train. (laughs) So like stuff like that, it's fun to catch again on a repeat viewing knowing that step by step he kind of reels you into this very small contained world. I also think he does a wonderful job of using his camera to put us in the shoes of Jake Gyllenhaal's character. There's a particular sequence early in the film where he first finds the bomb. And it's really early. It's actually a very surprising moment because you think like, I think sometimes, you know, it's, you want to just dive into a movie and not think about how much time has gone by. But I think most of us who watch a lot of movies, like we've got about a 120 minute clock in our head where we're like, oh, this is way too early for this to be fixed. So he's finding the bomb already. Okay. I guess that's, that's an interesting choice that we're making, but there's a certain shot where, you're just following Jake Gyllenhaal and then all of a sudden the camera really quickly moves to the edge of this vent and it's it's a really interesting trick because at that point we are in Gyllenhaal's head we are we are thinking as he's thinking and there's a certain way that the camera moves and it could just be this slow kind of tracking shot and zooming in on it and it would have been you know tedious at best but I like the fact that it puts us you know firmly in our protagonist's shoes and that's something that not every director can do Absolutely. Yeah, I think the way that this movie's put together, it's very playful in that regard. Yeah. Like, um, watching it again, I honestly kind of got sort of a Spielbergian sense. Like, I mean, kind mm. of his sci-fi stretch. Think like Minority Report and oh, stuff. Oh, totally. Where yeah, I can see that. Kind of reeling you in. Like, and at the, at the time this movie came out, I think you had a bit more uh, sort of the sci-fi scene at the time. You had more serious uh installments in the genre i mean yeah you were coming off inception from the year before i think he had district nine two years before that and uh this this movie even moon i thought was more of like you know sort of a downtrodden movie compared to this but source code even though you're dealing with like you know kind of a ptsd allegory in a certain sense mm-hmm. it's very there's an energy to it there's kind of a fun even to like the score i yeah i, I think it really there's just sort of this kind of upbeat tone to it all, even though it deals with very serious subject matter. And Duncan Jones does a good job reeling you in without, you know, overwhelming you with too much at once. Yeah, that's a good point, especially compared to something like Moon. Like, this is down down near lighthearted in comparison to Moon. Like, there's, yes, it is about serious things, but as as he's trying to solve this mystery, like, there's like, and some of this is performance-based too, there's like this glint 
in Gyllenhaal's eye. Like he's excited by this and yeah. we are kind of brought along with it. And it does, it does seem reminiscent of Tom Cruise's performance in Minority Report yeah. as he's kind of piecing everything together. So definitely. I also think it was kind of a, a gutsy move and almost an unnecessary move. Uh, but I'm glad he did it is to have that mirror shot early in the movie. Yeah. So it's so clear that, okay, he is in someone else's headspace and they explain it later. So you don't really need that shot, but it's really convincing and it's a really I, nice moment. That was sort of one of the trailer shots. Cause I remember the commercials yeah. played that a lot so that viewers could be like, okay, so just so we're clear, he's a different guy. <laughs> Cause yeah, in the movie they do explain it again, but yeah, that kind of felt like a gimme, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was a fun visual moment and I, I really mm-hmm. liked that that was there. Um, so let's let's move to the acting. So let's talk about Joan Hall. Joan Hall at this point now is, I think I don't think you'll get any argument if you say he's one of the best five actors working right now. Like he's in when it comes to awards and stuff, he's very underappreciated. But I think yeah. as far as film fans, like we all know <laughs> that he's right <laughs> up there. Um, so what did you think of his performance here, which is relatively early in his career? Yeah, relatively early in his career, you had Zodiac, you had, uh, wasn't he just in, like, Prince of Persia before I was, this? I was, so maybe not the best I was example, wondering if so. you were going to bring that up. <laughs> he was, I think, like, the day after tomorrow as well, he was oh, kind of yeah. a headlights in that. So, like, he hadn't nailed his choices yet. Not but since I mean, Donnie Darko, knew, that was but, probably the only thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I mean, we knew even then that he was a good actor and here i think there's still kind of a youthfulness to his performance i mean we hadn't really seen any majorly dark turns yet like a nightcrawler or something at this point so you kind of get that he's a fish out of water in this for sure but not just such an overplayed like dopey i don't know what i'm doing fish out of water like there's definitely gears turning and i mean so that really works he conveys that well and i think the key is how he interacts with michelle monahan who You know, that's a role that's hard to pull off because she's saying a lot of the same lines over and over again. But and I mean, she's kind of playing it, I think, almost as sort of like an idealized recreation of this character before the bomb goes off. And she does that very well. And I think his total just confusion and her kind of, to him, uncomfortable optimism, they pair well together. Yeah, and I think I think Gyllenhaal, like I think he's he's great earlier in his career in things like Donnie Darko, but it's a very different kind of role. And then you you mentioned like things like Day After Tomorrow. They tried to kind of slide him into this kind of standard action leading man yeah. role, uh, and that doesn't really suit him. But I think this this type of movie is a really good balance for here because he really has charisma to spare, yeah. uh, and. And you need that in a role like this because he is all you're focusing on. Like, yes, you have these other side characters, especially these two female characters who are coming into play. But if his performance doesn't work, the whole movie completely falls apart. Uh, And I think he does a good job not only of keeping that lightheartedness, but when things get serious and things get anxious, you can see it read on his face. It's not just his voice. It's not just, you know, the physicality of his body, but like the, the emoting he's doing with his eyes. I mean, especially near the end of the film when he has that phone conversation you know with his father it's really moving and kind of in a surprising turn like they they bring that up relatively late in the movie so they don't have a lot of time to kind of build the importance of that moment but man it really lands well yeah and i mean he does a lot of heavy lifting because you have a lot to get across and this is a short movie this is a little over 90 minutes and you you run the risk of having it you know be kind of like a fluffy sort of narrative yes Uh, with that, and I think that Gyllenhaal and Monaghan um, both kind of they they inject some pathos into the proceedings. Like mm-hmm. it's not just kind of a contained thriller, you know, where that's all there is to it. I mean, there's some meat on this skeleton as well, and they yeah. do a very good job at adding that. Yeah. So let's talk about Michelle Monaghan, who, for my money, is the most underappreciated, underrated actress out there. She I think. Is- good every time she's on screen even in bad movies like she's so good and i just don't understand why people i don't don't know maybe some of it's her choice maybe she's not you know wanting to build this huge career maybe she's just kind of enjoying her life but man every time she shows up in a movie i'm one i'm immediately charmed by her and she's actually really good i mean you brought up in your recommendations kiss kiss bang bang bang, and she's phenomenal in that like she's perfect and here she's i mean it's a limited role but it's and again it's a it's a female role that is really designed to in a lot of ways build up our male protagonist but it's done in such a way and with such a smirk 
that it's still enjoyable and it doesn't come off kind of ugly like that. Like you said, is very good at being a supporting actress. I mean, she probably deserves more leading roles, but I think she adds more to supporting roles than they might have initially. I always thought she was phenomenal in True Detective in the first yep. season of that, yep. um, in a role that some criticize in terms of the writing. I thought that she very much stood toe-to-toe with Woody Harrelson and all the scenes she shared with him, and she's good at you know, making you care beyond what's on the page. And I mean, obviously here, in a role that is kind of an archetype for the sake of the screenplay, right? there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah, and also great in movies like Gone Baby Gone. Like, she's had Mm -hmm. a lot of wonderful, like you mentioned, supporting performances. Uh, The other female supporting performance here is uh, Vera Farmiga, uh, who is another one of those actresses that anytime she shows up on screen, like, I'm happy. Because she's always, you know, again, another one of those actors that in a lot of ways hasn't gotten, like, the big roles. Of course, she was in things like The Departed, which was a huge movie, but again, in very much a supporting role. Build in that, or yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. And this is a movie. It's an interesting performance because it's it's one of her few that we're not sure whether we can trust her or not. And I think she she kind of dances along that line very well. Um, it ends up we can trust her. I think I think she her character takes a turn later in the movie. But it's interesting how much of the emotion of this performance is is held back just below the surface. And I think she's kind of masterful at, at creating that. Yeah, and I mean, for most of this movie, she is more or less speaking into a screen and Hall is viewing her. Like, we don't get a ton of scenes where it's from her point of view yeah. looking at someone else. I mean, she's kind of compartmentalized in the movie in that way. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it could be a thankless role, much like Monaghan, but yep. makes the most out of it. Absolutely. Yep. And I think this is just a movie full of actors who I love who never get a chance at lead roles because Jeffrey Wright... Uh, who Wright. kind of plays so the big bad. Yeah. Oh my God, he's phenomenal. Like I just, you know, even in, uh, you know, he's doing a lot of TV work now. Like he had a, a major role in, uh, in yeah. Westworld. And yeah, between this and Westworld, he's a good exposition dumper. Oh I God, think he's he great voice. does that very well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you find out just how evil he is later in this movie, it's really affecting and genuinely kind of terrifying. Like his performance yeah. here, I think it's interesting because it plays, uh, it plays on a lot of, a lot of kind of stereotypes going on. Like we're we're kind of trained, I think, to see people, especially uh, slightly older actors, walking with a cane as someone who's yeah. non-threatening. And he is easily in a movie with an explosion. He is easily the most threatening thing in this movie. Yeah, no, he absolutely is. Like just that kind of sinister corporate shill who yep. is calling the shots as much as. Vera Farmiga's character would like to maybe help the situation at hand. I mean, he is having Hall operate on the script of how the source code works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he can only know so much at a time. And again, he doesn't... A lot of the actors in this movie don't do that much just in terms of going places mm-hmm. and, like, carrying out actions. A lot of it is them just kind of being stationary and talking. Yep, It's very talky in that way. And he does such a good job with that. They all do. Yep, absolutely. So let's move to the script. So there's one giant loophole here I think we have to talk about. And it'll probably be the only negative thing I say about the screenplay. Because I think it's a really tight, really efficient, kind of wonderfully written movie. But the whole idea of the source code, right, is that they're accessing this one person's memory. Uh, And apparently this guy met everybody. Like, this guy knew everyone. Like, he made his way around that damn train. Like, he knew everyone. So it is – you do have to kind of suspend your disbelief. Um, But I do – one thing I really like is that they have, you know, all these instances of the machine, like, slowly breaking down. So there is a real risk risk there. Because otherwise you're like, well, you can just sit by each individual on this train and you're going to eventually figure out who it is because there's only so many options. So I like that they throw that curveball in there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, and I mean, (laughs) it's funny you say that, because I mean, obviously we're dealing with kind of a time travel narrative. I mean, I know they say not really. But kind of. (laughs) But it's kind of a sub-genre of sci-fi that this sort of thing happens a lot. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of cool with that. That is kind of funny now that you mention it, though, that I mean, every minute character he saw, I mean, this was the most (laughs) observational person ever. I mean... (laughs) He more or less is kind of an audience surrogate in that way. So, I mean, right. you know, that's kind of interesting that 
we're seeing all the stuff that he's seeing because it's his memory. But and I, I think, about that I think they try and explain it away very early in the movie. Michelle Bonahan's character says like, well, don't you know, you talk to these people more than I do. Like, so you get the mm. idea that he's very personable and he has made contact with a lot of people, but I do think it asks, it asks a little bit of the audience, which is kind of okay. Uh, yeah. one, th- one thing I really like though, is the decision at, uh, at a couple moments to move outside of the train, because I think it, it alters the playing field a little bit and stops the audience from getting bored of just being on this train. Like you have the first one where he kind of drags Michelle Monaghan off the train and ends up getting run over by the train. And then we have a scene later where he actually tracks down the person that did this and ends up getting shot. But I like that, that the movie, when it can kind of stretches the the setting just a little bit. Yeah. And, and again, it's just enough. It's a little bit at a time. It's not, you know, a lesser screenwriter might have just had them on the run off the train halfway through because they got right. bored of the scenario. Exactly. And here, they sprinkle it in. I think there's those two, those two scenes, and then near the end, once he and Monahan like, finally get off and, you know, go on their date or whatever, I think, isn't that kind of just, like, the third instant, yeah. instance of them? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't lose the the sense of setting. Right. You don't, but they do just enough. And that second scene you mentioned with him tracking down a suspect and going into his van and all that, that's one of the best scenes in the movie, I think, in terms oh, of attention. Definitely. And in terms of getting to mix up the set design a little bit. Like Yeah, and I and I think uh that scene really hammers home like the other thing that I took away from this is okay, so there's a lot of mystery movies out there where quote unquote everyone is a suspect, right? Yeah. And many of them do it very poorly. Uh, but this is not one of those movies. Like, from the very beginning, it really sets up that it's a real mystery here. Like, even the kind of opening line about talking about, you know, good advice. And you're like, what is that about? And then slowly yeah. they sprinkle in more details about his life. And there's even a moment early in this movie where you're like, maybe Sean, the the person he's inhabiting, maybe he did it. Like, we don't yeah. know. Like, it's it's a really well-done mystery. And I like that piece by piece, it slowly gives you enough clues as as Joan Hall's character gets the clues and kind of brings you along with it. I don't think there's a point where where you're sitting there as an audience member going like, I got to figure out who it is. I got to beat this movie. Um, yeah. But it also isn't so slow that it frustrates you. I think it does a really excellent job of balancing all of these characters to kind of bring you along board on this mystery. You We're talking about like a very tight runtime here, as we said, like a little over 90 minutes and it's, you know, just details coming in one at a time. And you're right. Like, I can't remember when I first saw this, if I was trying to outguess it or what. I mean, like, I mean, because, yeah, this this is a setup where you could very well throw in like a, oh, well, Gyllenhaal was actually the killer or something. Right. Like, you could make there be more of a gimmick to it. But Duncan Jones is smart in choosing to not do that and instead just kind of get as much, you know, as much fun, as much experimentation, and as much character as he can out of the scenario versus trying to throw a curveball in there. Right. And I think the other challenge of this movie, anytime you have a movie that has like basically one setting but then is bouncing back to another set really briefly, and in this case we've got like the kind of Vera Farmiga set going on, how do you think the movie paced itself in kind of delivering us back there and then going back to the train and switching back and forth? Did you ever feel like impatient to get back to one place or another? I honestly didn't. And I think that it was a perfect 50-50 because, again, this is something else that a lesser screenwriter might do is you might just, you know, for lack of imagination, just keep doing the train over and over. And that would get tedious because you're hearing the same lines every couple of minutes Mm -hmm. but here i mean it's more or less you know train real life train real life and they balance between the two i never felt that and maybe this is because they don't spend a ton of time in the world that vera formiga and jeffrey wright are inhabiting they don't spend too much time because i mean you've got world building to set up in this because it's you know the source code is a new technology that you know might be familiar to some ardent sci-fi fanatics, but you still got to explain it a little bit and they don't do it too much. They just have brief little exposition bursts and then you're back in the action. Yep. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And it was something I was really watching because I did remember that we are going back and forth. And, and that's always a big challenge. But I felt like they gave you – and it, it has to remain a mystery, that other world outside the train because you're kind of not supposed to know and you got to kind of dole that out slowly. And I thought, yeah. I thought, you know, Duncan Jones did a great job of that. Like every – as I go through this movie, I get more and more angry about the fact that he's not – making movies like this. I'm just hoping it gets yeah. back to well, this. It's working on, I think, Mute is what yeah. it's called, yeah. um, which should be coming out sometime soon. So that looks a little bit more in the small scale, more of a kind of tech-noir sort of setup. Right. But I mean, he's in the sci-fi. He's not doing the franchise game anymore. So yeah. Let's, he's not pinned down in that regard. Fingers crossed. Fingers. All, right, all right. So let's move to the production value. So uh, one thing you kind of mentioned already is the train itself and – you know, kind of talking about just keeping that interesting and, and but but also keeping it in a way where it feels like the same train every time because you can't yeah. change so many things up that you're like, oh, are we in the same place? You can you can never have a doubt in the audience that that is the same train. And I thought just the build of that train was beautiful and kind of really worked and felt lived in and felt like this is a commuter train that all these people are on all the time. You really do feel that. Yeah, you're right. It's not like the Snowpiercer train or something. You don't right. get too <laughs> creative with it. You right. know, it's it feels like a you know just train that normal people would take, and that's very key. And in the shots, in him kind of focusing on the same couple of areas when he does go, you know, to check on the bomb or to go off the train. That's the exception of the rule. For the most right. part, you're dealing with the same you know the same deck of cards, and right. and that's key. It doesn't feel like a movie train it feels right. <laughs> like you know just a commuter train yeah absolutely so what did you think of the kind of the explosion that we have here because that has to be it has to be important it has to be big but they also have to kind of switch it up as you you know repeat this eight minutes over and over again because if you just have the same clip of the explosion every time then i think it takes the audience out of it because we're like oh we know it's coming we know where it's coming from and it's not exciting anymore so do you think yeah. they manage that i do and i think it's actually interesting because i feel like the explosion is almost kind of understated in this movie mm-hmm. to where i mean you were talking earlier about how jeffrey wright is the far more intimidating presence in the movie and I would agree because, I mean, it's not this big, you know, Michael Bay explosion. It's not even a Tony <laughs> Scott explosion, right. really. I mean, it feels more like sort of just a piece in the puzzle versus this big ominous, oh, at the end of it, everyone's going to die. I mean, you don't lose the sense of stakes per se. But I think, like I said, with the whole movie having more of a kind of playful, you know, whims not quite whimsical, but, you know, less downtrodden than like, you know, his previous movie. I think that's an interesting choice because it becomes more about the people on the train and it becomes more about Jill and Hall interacting with the people operating the source code technology. The explosion is more just kind of another piece in the puzzle versus this big, you know, this big threat. I mean, it's, it's a threat, but it's not just this big scene stealer. It's just part of a much bigger equation. Yeah, but I do think that man, that first explosion really works uh, because because that's the only one we're not prepared for, right? Where it's the only one we're yeah, not quite sure abrupt. what's going on. That first one, oh, man, cuts off their conversation. That works really well. Yeah. yeah, and I also think they make and we mentioned this kind of moving the setting a little bit and having being able to see one or two of the explosions from outside the train. I think is also really smart because not only is it different, but we also get to see why it's happening when it's happening. Like we have this other train going by and it's this kind of compound explosion. And that's like the first time we, I think we really realize just how serious this is. So not only is it cool to look at, but it's creating more stakes. It is. Yeah. No, it's used tactically. It's not used as like a last resort. Right. So I think that really works in the movie's favor. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so now we're going to move to our favorite scene. So what's one of your favorite scenes from Source Code? Well, I, I definitely think the big two that stand out to me are, we talked about that second scene off the train where he's interrogating the suspect, and he goes into his van, and you've got all the, you know, the very patriotic imagery surrounding it, mm-hmm. and I think that is a good aesthetic choice in breaking things up. And I think, too... But that sort of is this sort of lens that Hall's character has to look through because he's inhabiting the role of a soldier who is being used 
as a means to an end right. by Farmiga and Wright's characters. And so I think that is kind of a good detour. That really works. The final shot of, you know, him having been shot and the other person on the other side of the, um, of the van. That's a great shot. Oh, I can't beautiful. think of the top of my head who the cinematographer for this movie is, but well done. So that whole sequence, I think, is really essential to keeping things moving and keeping things unpredictable. Yeah. So I really like that. And uh, go ahead. I was going to say, and also, it, like, again, we talked about stakes, and that just, it shows you, like, this is not just about a train. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if we don't stop this, some really, really terrible things are going to happen. And you're so right about that shot where uh, he gets shot, and then Michelle Monaghan's character gets shot as well. And you can just, and I think you get, again, how serious it is, because you just see them both hit the ground and hit the ground hard. Like yeah. this is – I think sometimes when people get shot in movies, it's easy to distance yourself from it. But you're so connected to these two characters especially that when that happens – I mean even though you know, OK, we're going to do this all over again, it is still really jarring and really kind of emotionally affecting too. It is. Yeah. No, that definitely – that's definitely a kind of step outside of the movie's comfort zone at that point. Yeah. Um, and I think it really pays off. And then the other scene that I really, really liked um, is when he calls uh, the character he's in. I believe it's the character he's inhabiting's father. Yeah. Who he calls on the phone. That scene is great for me because that's at that point in the movie, one of the slower, more emotionally fueled scenes thus far. And I love how the whole third act of that movie isn't him racing against the clock. Right. They kind of solve that relatively early on. It becomes more about him tying up loose ends in this character's life and obviously he starts the new timeline you know when he gets off the train with monahan's character i like that this movie kind of climaxes in him just being a good person and you know kind of that sort of shared empathy with the people in this timeline i mean the idea was for him to just sort of get in get out stop the bomb he's a gun for hire and he Mm -hmm. chooses to be more than that and i think that's great yeah, I think this movie breaks a lot of rules at the end at the end here. Uh the fact that like the whole movie is set up like find the bomb, find the bomber, fix this problem, and he does and there's like 20 minutes left in the movie after mm-hmm. he's kind of solved this problem and taken care of the guy and they figured out who he is. And then I I just really like that this character as well as the characters he, he's inhabiting gets kind of a happy ending ish of course there's there's a little twist at the end that we're not kind of sure what comes next because of the deception that we'll talk about in a bit but i just really like that it takes its time i mean this could have been an even shorter movie i mean this movie could have been an hour and 20 minutes and not have that wrap-up but i think that wrap-up really is important for us to understand how empathetic this character is and how much he really cares so i'm really glad it's there Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a very, it subverts expectations in a really creative way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's two scenes that I think of when I think of this movie. Um, I mean, Gyllenhaal is charming throughout. He, he does yeah. have that certain something, but there is a scene that he has uh, with Michelle Monaghan's character where he starts off talking about how decent and how real she is. And it's really sweet. And it's in the middle of this like action mystery. And it really took, took me aback. In that moment of like, oh, this isn't just a fun movie. These are people we should care about. And it's impressive that he does that, as we've mentioned a few times here, in that really short runtime. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, I mean, the line that kind of gets a lot of traction in this movie is when he asks her near the end, what if you knew you only had eight minutes to live? And, I mean, that on paper is just sort of like a trailer line. It's It's so cheesy. It's the gimmick of the movie. It's so cheesy. But... (laughs) It works because that ends up being the crux of Hall's character is making those seconds count, which is Monahan's response to him in that scene. It's about how this character is able to empathize with people in this very limited scenario with relatively little information on them. On yeah. them. So it's sort of kind of an uplifting movie in that way. I mean, obviously there's lots of deceptive acts and that you know sure. explosion that keeps going off so it's not right. a walk in the park at all but right. just in terms of him making the most out of a very limited situation there's sort of an inspirational undertone to that 
Yeah, and it's an interesting arc because at the beginning of the movie, when he first shows up, he goes through this, oh, none of you are real, so basically I don't give a shit about any of you. Yeah. And by the end, he cares about a lot of the people on that train, and I like that transition, and I think it's it's really – it's and it's effective. And it would be easy for that to really not land well, but Hall manages to make that work. Uh, the, the other moment I really like, and it's probably the line I remember immediately from the movie, is when he's trying con- to convince Vera Farmiga's character to kind of help him out and understand what's going on. Yeah. And he says, one soldier to another, am I dead? And it is – and I love that the movie just sits there with it. She doesn't mm-hmm. have an immediate response. And like I mentioned earlier, her emotions being just below the surface, her performance there is probably my favorite moment of the entire movie. And emo- so much of it mm-hmm. is just done without without dialogue. You, you can see her processing it. You can see her guilt. You can see her kind of second thoughts in that moment. And that's kind of the linchpin of of the whole movie kind of turning in another direction. That's that's a good point, and I hadn't really given that scene a lot of attention until you mentioned it. But yeah, I mean that is a good scene too, in that it unites those characters who are kind of being deceived by the same cause. I mean, she's a cog mm-hmm. in the same, you know, militaristic wheel he's in. I mean, she's not repeating the same thing over and over again. But in terms of making her more personable than just the person on the screen reading him instructions. I think that is pretty pivotal. Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting shot late in the movie where his back is turned to the screen and you can see her and, and it's arranged in such a way that she's literally looking over his shoulder and she's the Mm, only one in this machine who is willing to protect him at all. And I, and I really like that imagery that leads us to her actually making a decision that is very dangerous for her and a very risky decision. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, again, this movie, there's a lot more of it is more low key than you would Mm -hmm. expect. But, you know, Jones gets the most out of those little details. It all really pays off. Definitely. All right. So let's move to the theme. So the theme is deception. So as I gave you this theme and you watched the movie with that in mind, how did you think it played into source code? I mean, obviously, the I mean, this is going to be a theme that fits with a fish out of water narrative to a certain extent because you have Gyllenhaal's character not knowing why he's doing this exactly just that he's getting orders it's you know obviously you're set up to not trust Vera Farmiga's character from the get-go he's very not trusting of anyone on that train for the first couple of go-throughs of that scenario um, but it's kind of a fun spin on the fish out of water scenario in that, you know, he kind of gets the impression that he is a soldier being used in, you know, the powers that bees, you know, to their beck and call. So obviously you have sort of a skepticism of authority that's ingrained in the narrative, which I think very much ties into themes of deception. Um, so that's, it's a very creative way of looking at kind of a tired scenario in movies this right. guy who doesn't know where he is or why he keeps seeing the same things over and over again so yeah i think it's really just a clever setup and that even though it's not you know hitting you over the head with its themes you do have that sort of i mean deception as i know what we're talking about but i you know kind of get more of the sense of just sort of this post-traumatic stress fuel paranoia and not sure. like a very downtrodden version of it but you know you you hear stories of soldiers you know reliving the same sequences in yep. their head over and over again um and this is a movie of that yeah of play of that being the premise so i think that's fascinating yeah, I think there's there's two things that I thought of while I was thinking about deception and watching this movie is I think it's interesting that there are levels of deception in this movie. Um, you've got – I mean at some level, even though they're quote-unquote not real people, you've got Hall's character deceiving a lot of the people on this train. Uh, there's yeah. a whole sequence where you know he's he says he's somebody he's not in order to get people to stop and pay attention, and then you've got Vera Farmiga's character deceiving him at a certain level, but then she's also being deceived by the people above her. So it's really interesting. So she comes off a little bit blameless by the end of the movie because yeah. she makes 
what we would, I think, see as the right choices, uh, given what's going on. So I like that there's this kind of stepwise deception going on. And the other thing I started thinking is like, wow, in a lot of ways, this is really an indictment of the military industrial complex. Like the idea that they would, they would just use and deceive these soldiers for whatever ends and they just don't care. Like we're going to lie to you and say, yes, we will let you die. No problem. And then as soon as this is over, I mean, there's a line and it's another moment where the movie kind of goes, "Ah, we're going to make up our own rules about this because it's science fiction. They're like, "Okay, wipe his brain uh, and we'll do it all over again. And I think I think it definitely comes across as very kind of anti-government, anti-military. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, you never really do have that sense of trust in the people who he's answering to throughout. And I think that's key in keeping you know, when you don't know a whole lot about the situation, you're always skeptical mm-hmm. and that's good because it keeps you guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, you know, keeps the characters guessing and keeps the audience guessing. And I think it's for yeah. that reason, like it's it's a lot of things. There's there's a bit of action here and adventure, but I think more than anything, it's a really effective mystery. And that deception keeps us all on our toes. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Well, again, they just I mean, you've got themes that aren't really hammered in because on paper, this is just a 90 minute single setting type of movie. Right. And but they just with all the subtle little details, this movie, I think, is a lot more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to put it. All right, so now we'll talk about the movie we are pairing this with, uh, which is Happy Death Day. If you go on IMDb, it says, A college student relives the day of her murder with both its unexceptional details and terrifying end until she discovers her killer's identity. Uh, So in kind of hearing about this movie and watching this trailer, is this a movie you're excited to see, interested to see, or a movie you are avoiding like the plague? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, seeing this trailer, you do get the sense that it might get way more over the top with its scenario much quicker than something like source code or deja vu or edge of tomorrow would. Um, I I love the shot right near the end where the cop is pulling her over and he gets hit by the guy in the mask (laughs) and he comes out, he's like the Terminator. Oh, we're in that kind of movie. It's not just your typical like Friday the 13th type slasher thing. (laughs) I was kind of rolling my eyes at that. That being said, I mean, it doesn't look awful. I mean, I'm not going to avoid it like the plague per se. I mean, I think a lot of horror trailers are cut kind of in a sort of gimmicky way. Right. That's just trying to shock you as many times in two minutes as I can. I mean, <laughs> this is a Bloomhouse production, which they're definitely hit or miss, but they've been doing some stuff I like lately. I mean, obviously Get Out. Um, sure. I love their last two collaborations with Shyamalan. Uh, I really liked The Gift with uh, Joel Edgerton's directorial debut. Oh, yeah. So they've been... I mean, they've been doing, I think, more hits than misses recently. Yes. I don't know if this is going to be one of them, because, I mean, I don't, I, I'm just looking at the guy who did it, and I think it's, like, the writer of, like, the Sturpia, yeah. yeah. a couple of the later Paranormal Activity movies. So, like, I mean, I'm not holding my breath, but right. it doesn't look <laughs> awful. I think the central idea is fun. It's not just the most generic slasher ever. So, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it's very much a horror version of a of a gimmick we've seen a lot before. Sure. So like not the most ingenious thing ever, but in terms of like right. a, I assume it's a PG 13 horror. I didn't see yep. the rating, but it, it has, okay. It looked very PG 13 to me. So as far as PG 13 horror goes, it looks okay. I think. Right. Like I saw the trailer and I was actually, I was like, you know what? I'm into this. Like it should yeah. be schlocky fun. Like I'm not looking for this to like change the face of horror movies or anything like that. But it's I think it's an interesting way to look at the quote unquote final girl uh, in these kind of horror movies because yeah. this is a final girl who gets numerous chances to survive, uh, and that's a really difficult balance because it could very easily just be like, oh, we're gonna watch this pretty blonde 18-year-old girl get murdered in many, many different ways. And hopefully it doesn't kind of fall prey to that kind of ultra schlocky uh, horror. But I think it's just a really interesting idea. And yes, it's been done before in other genres, but I haven't seen this a lot in the horror genre. And I think I'm I'm surprised. I think it's interesting, yeah. And I think it fits that genre really, really well. So I am surprisingly interested in seeing this movie. Like, if you just read the synopsis, you're like, oh God, that sounds horrible. But like, like seeing the trailer, I was like, you know what? 
I, I would spend an hour and 30 minutes with that. Yeah. I'm okay it with looks that. like a fun rental. I'll say that. Yeah, much. yeah. I, mean, I think that's a good call. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. So before you go one more time, maybe tell people how they can contact you online. So you can uh, get in touch with me via Twitter at Tyler Heverly. I mean, it's just my name. I'm uncreative. And <laughs> you can read my articles on audiences everywhere. And yeah. Thanks, everyone, for continuing to listen to Pop Culture Case Study. And thanks to Tyler for being on our show. So be sure to follow him at Tyler Heberly on Twitter. And that's H-E-B-E-R-L-E. Uh, so if you want to get in contact with the show or connect with the show, there's lots of ways you can do that. The best way is to find me on Twitter. That's at PC Case Study. Or you can email us and just send an email to popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. And we're also on all sorts of other social media platforms. Just look up Pop Culture Case Study or PC Case Study on, t- on Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, all of those good places. So, if all goes well, we will actually be having a new release episode this week, and we'll be taking a look at Happy Death Day. And if you want to support the show monetarily, you can do that on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and you can donate on a per-episode basis, and it's a really great way to support your local independent podcast. All right, until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Not a lot of subtlety. I like Eli Roth, but not a lot of subtlety in his. (laughs) Right, yeah. I mean, he's not going to deconstruct (laughs) it. Yeah, not so much. No.